The sermon scripture text this morning is from 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 18. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked. And behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken, forsaken your covenant thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will, will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that I have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. very important for me to close all the doors before I start preaching. So, but, uh, anyways, my, um, my informal introduction this morning, which has become, uh, in some ways, a bit of a formality for me, uh, is uh, for the benefit of Nolan and Chandler and also Jack. 
um, who at some point, for the sake of the website, will ask me what the title of my sermon is. Um, I don't have a title. I never have a title. Uh, but I do have, this time, a working title, at least. So there's that. Um, and so with no apologies uh, to Max in season four of Stranger Things or Kate Bush, uh, it's just Elijah running up that hill. And I say no apologies intentionally because um, in order to maintain my uh, hipster dad street cred, uh, I will not formally acknowledge uh, the mainstream attention that, uh, that that TV show has given to the song. And instead, uh, I will appeal to the lesser known indie cover uh, of Running Up the Hill uh, by the indie band First Aid Kit. Um, Listen, if none of that makes sense to you, uh, then, then you know, I'll just quote uh, Michael J. Fox uh, in Back to the Future who said, um, I guess you guys aren't ready for that, but your kids are going to love it. Um, and, uh, and to this, uh, you know, um, not, none of this is neither here nor there. It's, it's very yonder. Uh, let's uh, start by... Uh, looking very briefly at uh, Luke chapter 9. Now it happened then as he, that is Jesus, was praying alone. The disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning uh, not because of the prophets of old or, or even because of uh, the great John the Baptist, but we come this morning because Jesus is the Christ of God. Lord, we pray that during this time of examining your word, uh, that that could not be uh, any less apparent to us, uh, that instead, Lord, we pray that it would be the great theme, not only of this sermon, but even our entire lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, fear. Have you ever been afraid that someone was going to hurt you? And I don't mean that fleeting moment in a car uh, when another vehicle does something really erratic and you've got to make a quick response. I mean really afraid that someone will intentionally and with malice hurt you. Moreover, have you ever been afraid that you were going to die due to a violent threat upon your life? Well, listen, I don't, I don't mean to, uh, I don't seek to trigger anyone who's got repressed uh, memories this morning, but when we look at 1 Kings 19, 
I think we would do a real disservice to our understanding of the text if we don't first begin with an understanding of Elijah's psyche. What was going on with Elijah before he found himself at the entrance of a cave of Mount Horeb and the Almighty God passed before him? And God's character is immutable which is to say, God does not change. And yet, at the same time, God reveals himself at specific points in time in ways that make sense of the circumstances that his people are in. What I'm trying to say is, God wouldn't show up to a church work day in a three-piece suit. No. Every time God encounters a person, he does it in a way that is perfectly tailored for the person and for the moment that that person is in. And part of what we see uh, in this theophany or appearance of God is unique to God's response to Elijah's individual circumstances. And Elijah was a man who was shaken to his very core. And perhaps, because of his overwhelming fear, Elijah was unclear about the mission God had called him to and was confused about God's overarching plan. Let's say that again, because that's, I don't have uh, three neat points as we kind of work our way through this narrative this morning, but in a real sense, this would be kind of a main point or a thesis, if you will. Elijah was a man who was shaken to the very core. And perhaps, because of this overwhelming fear, Elijah was unclear about the mission God had called him to and confused about God's overarching plan. So we need to talk about fear this morning. Uh, not fear as in the really bad uh, 1990s Mark Wahlberg movie, not fear uh, the great Toad the Wet Sprocket album. We need to talk about fear in every other sense, though. Rational fear, irrational fear, legitimate fear, misguided fear, all the fears. But we also need to recognize that Elijah is not a one-dimensional character, okay? He is, he is not like Bill Hader's character, Fear, in the Pixar movie Inside Out. Uh, when, when we think about Elijah at this point in time, uh, I, I think of the, security, the secret security detail assigned to Mike Pence uh, on January 6th. It's the mob of insurrectionists ascend the U.S. Capitol with shouts of hang Mike Pence and makeshift gallows are erected at the base of the Capitol steps. The Secret Service agents acted quickly to barricade the vice president from the progressing chaos. But they also Recognize that keeping him inside the building could be a perilous decision. 
they determined that they needed to find an escape route. And we know now, uh, because of the January 6th Congressional Committee hearings, that these secret security agents, in the midst of making those preparations to move the vice president, were making phone calls to their loved ones to say final goodbyes. That's real terror, isn't it? That is real terror. Real fear based on a clear and present danger. And I don't know a lot about Secret Service agents, but I think it's safe to assume that you don't become a part of the second highest ranking leader of the United States, personal security detail, if you're thought of by others as a wimp or easily spooked, right? Like these, these are the best guys that are on this task. They were terrified. The prophet we see in 1 Kings 19 is a lot like those secret service agents. Look with me at verses 9, or chapter 19, uh, verses 1 through 3. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So as we begin to go into more detail about Elijah's state of fear, again, let's not divorce this from the reality that for all intents and purposes, Elijah's a, a bad mamma jamma. Uh, chapter 18, verse 40, uh, we see him uh, at the side of a brook. He's slaughtering 450 prophets of Baal. I've slaughtered chickens before, um, harvested some deer, harvested some deer. Uh, you know, um, it's a lot of work. I, yeah, I don't the, the thought of that and the fact, like, we're talking about real flesh and blood people here, right? Like, that happened. That happened. Uh, and, and I don't think, I, I think we have reason to believe that, that he had some help, uh, as it says that he, he had folks, you know, gather up these prophets for him. That's a, that's a massive and gruesome undertaking, and not for someone who's a squeamish pansy, right? Elijah's, Elijah's a tough guy. Uh, and yet I think the sight of that massacre was keenly in his mind's eye when he receives Jezebel's very personal death threat. For he's not just so afraid that he scurries off, right? He, he's also, I think, aware that running for his life at this juncture 
is a, is a capitulation of the life he's been called to live. So now it's over. He might as well die. Just not presumably a death like the one that Jezebel had planned. Look with me at verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Let's be frank. What Elijah is asking for God from here is essentially asking God to play the role of, of a Dr. Jack Kevorkian. He, he wants to die, and he wants God to snuff out his life right then and there. The fear has led to shame, and shame has led him to believe his life is no longer merited. Uh, again, we can turn back to chapter 18, and see that Elijah had previously been the very antithesis of the man that we see here in chapter 19. Uh, He tells Obadiah in verse uh, 7 of chapter 18 to go to Ahab, prophet Obadiah, go to King Ahab and tell him, behold, Elijah is here. So our ears... That may not sound like very much, uh, but not only was Elijah at this point a marked man in Ahab's kingdom, but, but Obadiah, for him to say those words, is to, say, to say Elijah is here, is, is to say the name Elijah, which literally meant Jehovah is my God. So to to put it plainly, Elijah is asking his fellow prophet to walk up to the most powerful man in the land who had clearly forsaken Jehovah, the God of Israel, for his wife Jezebel's God, Baal, and whatever else was fashionable at the time. Go up to him and say, Behold, Jehovah is my God is here. King's not likely going to take that as a a kind and thoughtful word. No, he was very, very likely going to slay the messenger. But Elijah expected a fellow prophet like Obadiah to be brave and not back down to the calling. Here in chapter 19, under the broom tree, Elijah feels the shame and hypocrisy of having run instead of standing his ground. Now, Elijah had been a powerful instrument in God's hands for his redemptive purposes. Elijah was the front line in preserving God's people from leaders who wanted to usher them in to open rebellion. And Elijah was not just 
some kind of disposable tool like the kind you get from Harbor Freight. So God did not answer Elijah's earnest plea to kill him that day, did he? Maybe to one degree or another, you've had a crisis where you've thought, like Elijah, that your faith is fraudulent, that you've run when you, stood, when you should have stood, that you were unable to take the very advice to be strong and courageous in the Lord that you've told others to have previously. If you've ever felt that way, or if for some reason in the future you feel that right way, and really, if for any reason at all you've ever felt that there's no reason to keep living, know this. You are not disposable to the God who made you and loves you. You are not disposable to our Lord. Look with me to 1 Kings 19, 5 through 8, where Elijah, in his moment of greatest shame before God, is not smacked down by God. But instead, God graciously provides Elijah with what he needs to continue on. Picking up in verse 5. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. Sorry, I lost it. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he rose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Let me put it to you in the form of a question. What do you think God will do if and when you are ashamed of how you have responded to the circumstances of your life? God is not lying in wait for you to screw it up so that he can discard you and move on to someone who appears to operate a little better under the pressures of life. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, God's salvation plan for you is one in which he has worked, is working, and will continue to work. If you find yourself sinking into the waves, don't believe the lie that he wants to see you drown. Instead, look up to him in faith to sustain and rescue you. But listen, God's saving action is more than simply just throwing a life preserver around your neck and watching you bob along in the water. This is, 
We're talking about a, a time continuum, right? Again, Elijah is receiving from God in God's perfect timing exactly what Elijah needs. We're, we, we don't, but we don't put a time constraint on these things that deal with God's great providence to preserve the people that he loves. When God calls us, he desires that we see what he's up to. And oftentimes that means we don't just need to be pulled out of the waters that have us, that have us up to our neck. We also, in due time, need corrective eye surgery. And so after Elijah is moved out of his state of catatonic paralysis, God begins working on Elijah's heart and mind. The words of God that are heard at Mount Horeb are similar to the words of God that are heard in the Garden of Eden. When God says to Adam and Eve, where, where are you? And when God says to Elijah, what, what are you doing here? God's not asking because he's lost the script. His asking is a perfectly timed rebuke because as we know, God, our Lord, he disciplined through 13. And he said, go out and stand on the mounts before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Make no mistake about it. The God who in a moment stirred up hurricane-like winds so severe that it caused the mountain to crumble like cookies, caused the earth to shake, and then in a moment brought a consuming fire, that God could have visited the people of Israel in these ways. In other words, he could have struck the people dead. And if Elijah is in fact the only one left, then why would God act any different? But Elijah was wrong about a couple of things. First of all, he was wrong about being the only one left. We see the truth of the matter down in verse 18, that there are still 7,000 faithful followers of God in Israel. More significantly, Elijah misread God's plan for him. Yes, 
he was called to be faithful in life-threatening places and to even at times deliver God's judgment of death against those who openly rebelled against him. That judgment, while very real, very final for some, is never the goal. God did not appear to mankind so that he could destroy us. If that were the case, the story would have ended Genesis chapter 3. The prophet whose name means Jehovah is God was being tasked to anoint his successor, Elisha, the prophet whose name means God saves. God calls us, sorry, God calls out to us in the wilderness for us to both hear and to proclaim his word of salvation. Let me say that again. God calls us out in the wilderness for us to both hear and to proclaim his word of salvation. The word of salvation is not something that we receive and then gain exclusive ownership rights to. I write a lot of contracts. I'm not writing that one. On the contrary, God calls upon us to be the means by which others will hear his voice. If you hear God's voice calling you to himself, rejoice in that salvation. Know also that God desires for you to exhibit this joy so that others may see and desire salvation as well. It's true that if we look at verses 16 and 17, we can see that there will be judgment for those who reject God. But God's overall message is that he never, he is never ceasing to orchestrate his rescue plan for the people he has set his love upon. The Apostle Paul says this very thing in Romans chapter 11, verses 2 through 6. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Paul says, but what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, Paul says, at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. The plan of redeeming grace, of course, reaches its apex when the word became flesh and walked on earth. Turn with me to 
to Luke chapter 4. We see in Luke 4 a story that in many ways runs parallel to this experience of Elijah's. But in every way, Jesus is greater than the great prophet of Israel. We saw Elijah afraid, running for his life, and even asking God to end his life. Then we see Elijah being spoken to by an angel and receiving life-sustaining nourishment that lasts him 40 days in the wilderness. What do we see here in Luke 4? Jesus doesn't run. He doesn't run to the wilderness. Instead, he is led by the Holy Spirit. Instead of receiving 40 days worth of bread, he goes 40 days without bread. And at the same time, we're also reminded that he was fully human. He was hungry. And he was tempted. Instead of being spoken to by God, he was spoken to by Satan and still did not sin. Elijah saw that God's mission was not about an impending storm of judgment, but the cup of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus so that he would become God's plan of salvation for us. Like Elijah, Jesus emerges from the wilderness with a mission that calls him toward the good of others. The first words that are spoken by Jesus after his temptation in the desert are literally the gospel words of the prophet Isaiah. We often speak, and rightly so, of Jesus as the true king. We also speak of him as the great high priest. Uh, these are only two of the three offices of Christ. The word office uh, is more, it's kind of an older word. We don't use in, in this sense really that much anymore. But, but when we say office, what we really mean is, is his work or his function. Uh, so we, we, what we're really saying that in both uh, heaven and while Jesus was here on earth, he is to one degree or another principally about the work of being a prophet, priest, and king. It's here in Luke 4 that we see Jesus, as he begins his earthly teaching ministry, that he is most clearly the great anointed prophet who announces a hope that is without parallel in a world that has known the effects of sin for too long. Look, look with me to verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, 
to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We saw Elijah afraid and completely overwhelmed by the very real threats he faced. But we also saw how God delivered him, sustained him, and then sent him on mission. The same unchanging God who speaks to Elijah speaks to us through his word, that is, through his son. The God-man who went without bread in the wilderness is the bread upon which we are able to feed and never grow hungry. Brothers and sisters, you and I may never face trials like Elijah, but we will face trials of various kinds. We've been promised as much. And yet, the greater promise is that we can continue to put our hope in Jesus, and he will continue to prove that his plan is to lovingly and graciously rescue us. Cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. It's a really incredible word that reminds us that even the greatest figures in the Bible at the end of the day were men of flesh and blood, much like us, who would get scared, much like any normal human being would. And Lord, we also thank you that you continue to respond to us today with the same love care, compassion that you did back then, that you care for your servants, that you have given us your Holy Spirit through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us to press into him during times of trial and to help others to see the great mercy that you have for us through Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.